Hello, and welcome to How Books Are Made, a podcast about the art and science of making books. I'm Arthur Atwell. My first full-time publishing job was for Oxford University Press. On my first day, I picked up a glossy, hardcover history of the press, all photos and gorgeous typography, and I was filled instantly with a deep belief that I had arrived in a great temple of publishing, and that everything here was as it should be. I'm sure every great company has its own way of inducting fresh acolytes, and that is wonderful in its own way. The price, of course, is that it can take years to realize that there are many different ways to make a book. There are many different business models, technologies and workflows. And something that would have shocked young Arthur, there are different ways to define quality. Two decades later, I've come to understand that what matters is that every book has a purpose, and that that purpose informs the way you should make it, and the way you should judge its success. And that the more diverse your bookmaking experience, the broader your toolset becomes, both for making the right books and for knowing what matters most about them. If all that sounds a bit vague, my guest today will make it a whole lot clearer. Alicia Niehausberger is one of my favorite bookmakers. She leads publishing for one of the world's largest literacy nonprofits, Room to Read. And before that, she had my dream jobs at Penguin and Dorling Kindersley, publishing some of the most acclaimed children's books in the world. She brings so much joy and energy into a room that books practically sprout from the tables. As you can tell, I'm excited to share this conversation with you. Alicia, it is so lovely to talk to you and to catch up again. It's been quite a year and I'm really <laughs> so pleased that you could take some time to talk with me today. Thanks so much. Oh, you're so welcome. I'm so honored that you asked me. You know, you've worked in so many different parts of the publishing world. In thinking about this conversation, I really didn't even know where I would start. <laughs> you've edited award-winning books at Dorling Kindersley and Penguin. For the last few years, you've overseen publishing operations in over a dozen countries around the world. And I'm fascinated about what that's been like, and we're going to get to that. And what I'm hoping we might be able to do is talk through some specific books you worked on and how they were made. Sure. From there, I know we'll get to talk broadly about the big picture as well. Just to kick off, in prepping for our conversation, I set myself a little detective challenge. I read that at Dial Books, which is a Penguin imprint, you edited a book that won a Newbery Honor, which is a big deal in children's books. But I don't know which book that was because publishing houses never say exactly who actually worked on a given book. So <laughs> I did a little sleuthing. Let's see. Was it Savvy by Ingrid Law? It was indeed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was such a wonderful book and the, the experience was, was fantastic. So basically, you know, what happens when you're an editor uh, at one of the sort of bigger publishing houses and 
in New York and other places is, you know, you'll get a manuscript in one of two ways. So either an author will send it to you unsolicited and it goes into what's called a slush pile. I don't know where that term came from, but that's the term. <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, and so sometimes people will get together and kind of read those things or you'll get it from an agent. So I actually got savvy from an agent, someone that I knew called me and said, I have this book and it's set in a sort of a magical United States. And, you know, the kids all have what's called a savvy. It's a power they get on their 13th birthday. And, you know, he kind of went on and uh, I, I just loved it. Like he sent it to me, I think, I don't know, five o'clock or something via email. And I stayed up all night to read it and kind of sent him a note at two in the morning and said, oh, I love this book. I want to work on it. And um, it turned out that by the following morning, everyone else had read it as well and <laughs> also wanted it. But um, I think my my midnight enthusiasm really, really helped with that, of course, and the massive advance that, that Ingrid got for the book. <laughs> Good. That's fantastic. Um do you have a favorite project from your New York publishing days? Oh, it's like asking a parent to pick their favorite child. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think one that really stands out to me uh, is a book called The Vast Fields of Ordinary, which was a YA book, really sort of high YA, we would call almost like an adult book. And it was written by a man named Nick Bird, and he had been working on it in his MFA program. Mm. And um, when I received it, you know, it's a it's a book about a gay coming of age story in Iowa. You know, so the language is beautiful. Everything was really just fascinating about the story, but it has some really really tough tough things in it. And you know, my publishers asked me what you know what do you think makes this a young adult book as opposed to an adult book, mm. and. Um, I really realized in the process of working on that, that I see children's books or what makes a children's book as a book that has hope in it. You know, at the end, it's not a book where you feel like, wow, the state of the world is truly awful. And, you know, let's just get stuck in our in our angst for a while, even though there is angst in, in, in young adult books, I think there's always a feeling at the end of what makes, you know, a good children's book to me that there's possibility, there's hope, there's redemption. You can, you know, you can make of the world what you want it to be um, in a small or a large way. Yeah. So that book really helped me realize that hope is the key. Yeah. <laughs> That's so interesting. Uh, yeah. I feel very similarly about pretty much any media I consume. If the hope isn't there, I, I struggle to stick with it. So that's, that's really cool. <laughs> and what would have been the typical process for, for publishing a book? At a, at a big New York publishing company like that. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, after you get the manuscript, it sort of comes in one way or another, and you either win it at auction, which I did with, with Ingrid's book, or, you know, you get in touch with the agent or the author and say, I'd really like to work on this. Usually there's a very long sort of lag period, two to three years, usually, <laughs> while you're going back and forth. And there's more than one kind of editing. So the first kind of editing you do is developmental editing, where you'd be looking at the really large picture of the book. Yeah. So, you know, what are the, the scenes sort of in the right place? Do we need all these scenes? How about the characters? Are they, you know, do we need all the characters? Are they really interesting? Could they be more interesting in one place or do something a little bit more engaging? So you kind of look at all of those things, then you get into the nitty gritty of the sentence level editing and what we call line editing. And then after that, it will go through a copy edit where you're looking at grammar and, and you know, continuity and things like that eventually make it to production where you'll get usually advanced copies that go out to reviewers and bookstores and different places when you're trying to you know sell in a number of copies. 
and then you know eventually the pub date and the marketing and the publicity and it's it's always very funny because when you're working you know you've got some books that are coming out right then some books that you're still at sort of infancy stage some books that you're in the middle of you know by the time a book comes out you're like wait I worked on that a year and a half ago and now it's out and I'm just <laughs> make about it. Yeah, that's so interesting. When I was doing the sleuthing to see if it was savvy that you had edited, I had to take that into account, right? I had to figure out like when was Alicia <laughs> dial books and when did it win the prize? That was great. Totally. <laughs> I, I imagine there are many wonderful things about working in that part of the publishing world. And I suspect, like with all jobs, there are some downsides. For those of us thinking that those are publishing's dream jobs, in what ways are we right? And in what ways are those not quite the dream jobs that we think they are oh books all day it's the first part that makes it wonderful if you're if yeah. you you know if you grew up as a, as a bookish child as I myself did and I think a lot of people who go into books have that background you're working on the things that you see at mm. the libraries and bookstores that you loved as a child and for me you know going into my very favorite bookstore where I grew up in California and seeing a book that I had worked on or having the children's book person who had really helped me kind of curate my reading growing up, have books that I worked on was just beyond magical. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and I think, you know, just being a part of of the book is is the dream, right? If only that were the only part of the job. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, people get surprised when you start out as an editor that you know, so little of the job is actually sitting there reading manuscripts, working with authors, kind of holding their hands creatively. Really, it's a career about advertising your opinion, you know, saying, I yeah. love this book and this is why it's wonderful and this is why I'm right about it. <laughs> and um, this is why you should love it. And, you know, you do that in your publishing house, you come up with a sales sheet. I mean, marketing does some of that, but before you even get to marketing, you know, they're sort of looking externally, right? How do we market this to mm -hmm. consumers? You're the advocate in house. So you have to market it against all the other books that all the editors have acquired wow. <laughs> and try to get marketing publicity dollars for that book. So I think I'm kind of an overly sensitive perfectionist. <laughs> so in, in a career about selling your opinions, you know, I'd find times when I started to doubt them and it can take you to kind of a dark place. <laughs> yeah. I'm just terrible at understanding what people will like. So I would never survive in that environment. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so hard to know, right? That's the thing about publishing is that we act as though we understand what people are going to like. But if you look at what's published, like a book, book that was really popular when I when I was working at Dial, was that's when Stephanie Meyer's, um, oh my gosh, now I'm not going to, Vampire too. Books, thank you, Twilight came out. You know, that one people really liked right off the bat, you know, and but it came out and suddenly there's, you know, werewolf books and a million other vampire books and that's <laughs> the most popular thing. And they do sell. I mean, those copycat books sold in droves. And so, you know, publishing is acts as though it's finding the next great thing. And, and it is, but it doesn't know what that is, right? So they always call them the sleeper hits. <laughs> no one saw it coming. It's fascinating because we didn't know beforehand that it was going to be really popular. So about 10 years ago, you left the New York publishing scene for a series of very different adventures. From what I, can <laughs> I did. Not, not all in books. And today you lead global publishing for one of the world's biggest nonprofit children's book publishers at Room to Read. And I'm sure that story could fill a podcast on its own. What were the key moments that took you away from New York publishing and all the way to Room to Read? <laughs> oh my goodness. You know, in some place now it feels like fate. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, one of the things that's always been really important to me is 
learning about other places and other people. You know, I was an anthropology major in college and people always thought that was so strange. Like, how did you get into books from that? You were an English major. And I'm like, well, anthropology is the study of why people do the things that they do, right? Right. Um, And that's what a book is (laughs) to me, Um, helping you understand different, you know, different parts of the world and different ideas that are not your own. So I always kind of had that in my mind and, and sort of a wanderlust that I satisfied through reading, but also really wanted to travel. And my father, <laughs> he kind of had this seminal story growing up. He had hitchhiked across the United States when he was kind of mid-college. This was um, wow. right, I think right after Vietnam or at some point when he didn't, you know, he wanted to kind of not be around during yeah. that part of, <laughs> sure. the, of the history of the U.S., which you can understand. He So he hitchhiked across the United States and sort of found his way onto an airplane and started going across Europe and the Middle East and you know, worked in a banana plantation in Israel and drove a tractor in Turkey and all sorts wow. of things. And, you know, he always talked about other places. And, you know, if you hadn't seen the other places, then you were really missing out on what it means to be a human. Mm-hmm. And so I was really lucky enough to have the money, you know, and the privileged background to be able to make that happen for myself. So sort of when when the dark place of, of publishing <laughs> and my feeling like I don't want to be yeah. selling these books anymore in house and, you know, I want to go back to enjoying walking into a bookstore and not seeing it as like a battleground of like who won that <laughs> yes. auction and like I didn't get to work on that book. And, you know, I thought I want to go around the world. And I, I met a man in New York who was willing to quit his job and travel around the world with me. So we kind of made it our, our honeymoon. We called it, you know, put on a backpack and three changes of clothes and just went out for uh, about 18 months. So, so lucky to go to just so many places. You know, it turns out even the world is, a huger place than you can get to in a year, which you know, maybe it's very American to have imagined that I might be able to really see a lot of the world in a year. But um, certainly saw a lot of a lot of things, and I didn't know what I wanted to do when I got back. I knew I wanted to come back to California, where I'm from. There's a mm-hmm. there's a few publishing houses, but not a huge kind of children's publishing scene. You know, really, if you want to work in in publishing, you're in New York, or I guess in the sort of fanciest, most known part of publishing. And sure. And that's really where the kind of transformation happened. I got back here and literally the day I started looking for jobs, I saw this posting, a global children's publishing officer. And I was like, what's that? Hmm. <laughs> that sounds interesting uh, for an organization called Room to Read in San Francisco. And I'm like, what are you kidding? What? Like in San Francisco? So I started to do some research and, you know, really found that here's this organization, you know, helping new authors and illustrators publish books around the world and be able to kind of tell their stories and try and, you know, serve that audience of kids who doesn't have any books. I mean, I think that that really struck me in my privileged state as just the most tragic of possible things that you wouldn't have books, (laughs) you know, you, that you couldn't just travel from your corner of, of wherever you are. And then, of course, as I've gotten more into the development industry, I'm learning that so many children can't read, even if they do have one or two books. And mm-hmm. and so, you know, it's been really amazing to kind of be a part of helping change some of that to the extent that, that it's possible to help from the outside. Sure. Shortly after you started at Room to Read, you'd been working with publishers in Southern Africa, Zambia, Tanzania, South Africa. And in 2014, you wrote a lovely post explaining how at Room to Read, as you put it, every book is a small miracle. Can you (laughs) tell me more about that? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think um, 
I've described my background and kind of the the flashiest, showiest of of children's publishing, <laughs> uh, you know. But where you have all of these resources, you're an editor who has a force behind them of production and copy editing and just the capital that comes into to making books. And, you know, I remember I first picked up a book from Zambia and, you know, I looked at it and I'm like, the art is really like, I don't know, it doesn't look that exciting to me. And, you know, the paper that's printed on, I'm I just like the design. Oh, the design. Like <laughs> I didn't even mention designers. Right? I have a whole art and design department at the publishing house. And, yeah. and I thought, hmm, you know, I need to do something about this in my, you know, colonialist way or whatever you want to think <laughs> about it. And then when I first got to Zambia, I saw a little girl in the library that Room to Read had built, which was mostly full of English books because there just weren't other books in her language sure. in Nyanja. And so the teachers were very excited to show me that she could read this book. And she picked up one of these books that I had dismissed and just was reading it to me. And I I just saw like, this is the only book she has in her language. You know, there's maybe 10 and Room to Read has published all of them, right? And mm. And the reason that it doesn't look like this book that I'm used to is, you know, the the author may not have had the opportunity to read books growing up, probably didn't, doesn't have a sense of, you know, this visual narrative and the interplay between text and art and the artists, right? People are lucky if they can find materials and those are expensive. So trying mm -hmm. to find, you know, nice paper or nice paints mm -hmm. or even to have the opportunity. I mean, there's very few places in, in Zambia and certainly Tanzania where we work as well, where you can even go to art school, right? right? That's not, it's not really a thing. Um, and if you could, you're probably looking to be able to make a little bit more money than that is going to provide you. You know I mean? You right. have to have so many structures in place to be able to be, or to have so much air to be a creative person, right? Sure. So this book that you could overlook in this context of what books look like in the developed publishing world is actually like that it came together, that one person at Room to Read who also had no kind of background or anything like found a printer and got it, you know, all those things scanned at the local like scan shop on the corner and, mm, you know, wow, and, yeah. and put the text in and designed it. And there's a picture of the author and illustrator. I mean, all the things that allowed that to happen are really a small miracle. And um, it really humbled me to realize that. And I think I'm glad that that was one of the first trips I did in my job at Room to Read because you know, I think without that perspective, I would not be able to be in service to the people who who need it. Yeah, absolutely. It's always extraordinary to me the way people can create the books they do with so few resources. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it makes me feel really spoiled whenever I get to work on a book. But it's so magical to be able to be a part of helping bring that possibility to other kids and, and artists and illustrators. I mean, it's just, yeah, I'm so honored to be in my job every day. <laughs> And how do you work with those those teams? So perhaps just sketch how Room to Read is structured. Yeah. Who's on the ground in those countries and how they are part of the Room to Read network. So we have you know, country offices in most of the places where we work. And so there'll be a team whose job it is to help gather authors and illustrators, to work with them, to deal with all of the printing. And, you know, we often have one person I maybe two mm. people, not the publishing house of hundreds, right? Yeah. So they're doing everything. <laughs> They're all people from the country where Room Treat has an office, so they very likely haven't had much of a background in children's books either. You know, like mm -hmm. doesn't really exist there. And and even the the sort of idea of the picture book and this early level book that's super engaging mm -hmm. and fun. Like the idea of a fun book doesn't really <laughs> exist in a lot of yeah. the places where you are. like children have maybe seen their textbooks. Sure. There's not a history of being read aloud to. There aren't really books that you would read aloud. If there are children's books, they may be folk tales and much longer sort of stories. 
but not things for early readers. And you know, that's really the gap that Room to Read is trying to to help fill. If you haven't learned to read, I think by fourth grade, you basically are not going to really learn. That's kind of what right. the the data says, right? Yeah. And so that time in early elementary school when you could be exposed to books, when you could find what's in the pages of or you know, in between a cover very motivating. Yeah. That's when we need to capture readers and not just to experience the magic, but to be able to read for education, right? Of course, to sure. get a job and be able to change their circumstances if they want to get more education. So yeah. I think that period is is so important. And so anyway, I, I wandered a little bit there, but but back to um, That's great. Uh, how Room to Read works is my job and kind of the job of our global regional staff. So there's some people who have had more exposure to children's books or who have gotten it themselves or who have had more training with with me or people that I've been able to bring into to training is kind of just saying, you know, here's this kind of book that doesn't really exist where, where you are, but here's a way that it can be really beneficial. And so let's help people in your in your context try to write and illustrate these books. And so we bring in people who can help with that and try to mentor authors and illustrators, show them books. I mean, I think the hugest bit of it is exposure, right? If right. But that's where I'm, you know, you don't even think about being so spoiled. But if you're going out to write a children's book in a more developed context, like you just have it in the air and you, mm-hmm. you know, that you breathe, you've seen books, you've seen how they're used, you have an idea of what art might look like and visual narrative, and you just don't, you know, if you haven't seen that. So we try to bring lots of books, you know, and um and and talk about what they are and and help people make them. Of course, we do it in a week, right? Here's a book that you may not have had much exposure to. Just write one of your own. So yeah, it's it's quite intense, but I mean that that goes into that kind of miracle thing, right? That these books Mm -hmm. happen and, and then that they go back into the community. Last year, you wrote about an Indonesian book from Room to Read called Sirama Rama, about a little girl waiting for her father to come home from a job in a far off country. And it was really interesting what you were saying there about diversity, but also about the fact that that book would have come out of something like the process you've just described. Can you tell me a bit more about that book and what books like that mean for children? Yeah. So that book came out of a partnership that Room to Read did with some publishers in Indonesia. Um, And that's kind of the new way that we're, we're looking to work. You know, we had been really working directly with authors and illustrators. And in a lot of the places where we work, there really aren't publishing houses. Mm-hmm. So, um, mm-hmm. but there are a few. And, you know, I've really realized in my now eight-year tenure at Room to Read and thinking about sustainability, which is this huge theme, of course, in, sure. in international development, you know, everything we do must be sustainable, which in a lot of ways is a big joke. Um, yeah. If you really look at how most things happen, especially with publishing, where you'd come in and you'd skip publishing houses, you'd make some books and then they just go nowhere. <laughs> you say, what happened sure. to those books? Uh, <laughs> you know, you're going to reprint them. Uh, what's reprint? So they really need to get into the whatever system there is in the country for those resources to be available. So we started really trying to partner more with publishers and maybe really make that the way that we work, that we are looking more at ecosystems and how do we help an industry grow. Right. And so this was kind of the first time that Room to Read had worked directly with commercial publishers. Like, commercial, how can, can we do that as a nonprofit? And then like, <laughs> they're mer- we're making books, you know, it's not like <laughs> there's a, it's a very low margin, low margin industry. Anyway, I think we can do a commercial here. And, and, and I think <laughs> the idea that 
sustainability has nothing to do with with some commercial things is utterly ridiculous you know wow. kind of like you're at some sort of place where <laughs> we're all above people making money which is obviously yeah you know, just, just fallacious right so helping authors and illustrators get paid get paid fairly sure. and having their work stay available so Sri Ramarama was one of the first books um, in that first cohort of books and um my colleague Alfredo was working with the author and illustrator there and really playing visually with the teak in Indonesia. If you look at that book, which you can find on right, Room to Read's yeah. free online library, yeah. literacycloud.org, just a little pitch. Um, I'll put the link in the show notes. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's it's beautiful. And some of those patterns look a little bit like butterflies. And it turns out that a butterfly in Indonesia, I don't know if everywhere, but at least where this author is from, if you see a butterfly, it means that someone you love is coming home sooner or is coming back to you soon. Lovely. And so there's so many families, you know, all over the world for different reasons who have a parent or both parents who are not at home. And um, in this context, you know, oftentimes a lot of families from South Asia have a parent who goes to work somewhere in the Middle East or, mm. you know, somewhere quite far away. And so she's waiting for her father to come home and she sees this this butterfly that takes her on a journey through all the places she thinks he might be on the boat, on, on the train. And you kind of see her riding this butterfly in this very mystical way um, and coming back and getting a hug at the end, which I think, you know, oh, a hug from a parent, right? Who's been far away. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> Touches everyone. <laughs> you know, to, to see those kinds of books getting published is, is really exciting. Over the last couple of years, I've noticed, and I'm sure for many years before, we've seen a growing movement to see more diverse people and stories in books published, but also for, published for the US and UK markets, which are predominantly stories about white children. Mm -hmm. And to see that become more, more diverse is, is exciting. And it's really interesting to see Room to Read now contributing to that, even at home in the US. Can you tell me more about the Peace and Equality book collection project, which I think is a, a recent part of that. Yeah. So I I had just come back from maternity leave mid last year, about October, and Room to Read was just starting to think about trying to do some work in the United States. And of course, this was the time in mid-2020 where the country and the families of some Black Americans were really experiencing the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Armored Arbery, and just that terrible part of the political workings of this country were really in the spotlight. So we wanted to try and do something to respond. How can we help respond with books? So we wanted to kind of back out of maybe making books super, super political for like this very early age group that we're looking at. And we thought, you know, the themes obviously that need underscoring here are, you know, this idea of peace and equality. So mm -hmm. we put out the call for authors and illustrators through some networks for authors and illustrators of diverse books. So we need diverse books. It's a fabulous organization yeah. that started, I want to say, six or seven years ago here in the US and um, people of color in publishing. There's different places that we could have put this call. Hey, you know, 
please come join us to make some books. And uh, you'll appreciate the, <laughs> the, the way in which you did this, Arthur, because I happen to know of an organization in South Africa <laughs> called Book Dash, who, mm-hmm. who as, as its uh, intrepid founder once told me, squeezes the air out of the publishing <laughs> process that takes two to three years. And I thought, that's what I need. I need, I need a month, yeah, yeah. Know, a virtual month uh, to just be able to make these books. And so this was really new to people here just to say, all right, you know, we're going to, we're going to take this process. It usually takes sure. so long. We're going to do it in a month. Because I assume some of them will know that the New York publishing scene takes those years you were talking about. So a month must seem completely bizarre to those yes, who've done this before. Exactly. Totally. And um, I think the the bit that really made it work was the you know the sort of other innovation from Book Dash, which was having people make books in in really focused teams. So it right. was not just an author and illustrator, but also an editor and an art director. Mm-hmm who we had working on these books. And so those editors and art directors were sort of more experienced in the industry and were kind of there as mentors for the new authors and illustrators, kind of help hold their hand through this mm-hmm. process and, and also really be a cheerleader, right? Like, yeah. you can do this. Um, but well, but everyone was really working together. I mean, that's the amazing thing that I've seen at the, the book dashes I've had a chance to, to go to is just how when you have all these creative brains focused on you know, one goal in a short period of time, it's really amazing what can yeah. can happen. And so the books, we just actually launched them on Friday. Oh, cool. um, and you can find them all in Literacy Cloud as well. But um, I think they're magnificent and, you know, huge kudos to those creative teams who, who made them happen. Yeah, I, I had a <laughs> chance to look at them the other day. So I must have been looking to stuff till they launched. They are just so beautiful and so brilliantly produced uh there are such a contribution so i'm super excited to see <laughs> if maybe one day i'll even get copies in print somehow and, uh, and well i think you will because i believe our some of our south african team wants to adapt some of them wonderful places in south africa next year yeah fantastic <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely be getting those and i'll put the link to those specifically also in the show notes because they are really really worth visiting and then just before we wrap up um, you're a parent of young children, so you have, <laughs> like me, the best reason to collect and read lots of gorgeous children's books. As a as a bookmaker who knows what goes into making these things, what have been your favorite discoveries recently? What are the books we should also look out for? Yeah, you know, this is always such a hard question. Yeah. And, you know, books are just falling out of everywhere in my house. I mean, it's <laughs> it's a little bit insane. You know, the books from, the, I have a crate that's just books from the library because I can't keep track of like the 30 books in the <laughs> library that I have at a time. And then, you know, all Fantastic. the ones that I have in every, I get books from this wonderful place called Better World Books, and you can get those books from anywhere. And they ship them, you know, used books around the world. And wonderful. I I get a book like every day in the mail. My husband's like, really? Here's your book from today. Do you need this one? So, so trying to zero in on one is is a little tough, but it made me think about the fact that my my son has just started to read and it oh, has wonderful. been phenomenal to watch this happen. Mm. Just having worked in obviously, you know, books and reading and literacy for so long and then to see kind of the magical takeoff of like doing your phonics and yeah. kind of making words fit together and then suddenly having meaning and just being able to to read them. And so there's a there's a book that actually was really popular. I don't know if it made its way to South Africa, but I think it's probably from about 10 years ago, maybe a little bit less in the US called Pete the Cat. Yeah. I love my white shoes. Do you yes, know this book, Arthur? I love Pete the you Cat. You do. Yeah, it's Did fantastic you know? oh to my, watch okay, shoes. Okay. So 
the so brown like, shoes. Well, shoes. the first time I saw this book, well, right. The first time I saw this book, I, I looked at it and I just had my like dismissive, I don't know, hoity-toity editor reaction. Like, oh, you know, like white shoes that then he steps in strawberries and they become red. He steps in blueberries, they become blue. You know, I'm just <laughs> like, oh, come on. And um, I just, I don't know. For some reason, the art didn't appeal to me. And I was getting like, you know, sold all these copies. Everyone's like, beat the cat, beat the cat. And I'm just like, no. And um, this is why I know it was definitely before I had kids, like yeah, like 10 yeah. years ago. And um, I said this to a, a librarian friend of mine. And she looks at me and she goes, that book is the greatest. Like when I read it to kids, <laughs> they just love it. And I think, you know, what's so funny about being an editor, especially an editor who doesn't have children yet is you don't, you're not really in the world of kids and kind of seeing, like you remember what it was like to be a kid. So you can kind of mm. go back there. But my internal age is 12. That's where I always <laughs> go back to. Like, you know, so I can, I can access my inner 12 year old, my inner six year old or like, you sure. know, four year old, not as much. Yeah. So when I watch my son now, he just picked up this book and now he started to repeat the cat for himself. And he does all these voices and he's singing this song. I mean, it has so many things like the repetition. And also when I was reading it to him, I just see how brilliant of a book it really is. I'm so like ashamed of my, (laughs) you know, my my reaction when I think, you know, see, this is my opinion, right? My opinion is not always right. Like, thank goodness. Um, Yeah, there's lots of opinions and in what makes a good book. And it's just so immediate, you know, it's so funny and the kids love, you know, recognizing the things that the cat steps in and then it has this, you know, it's all good, like, you know, sort of hippie moral yeah. at the end. It's it's just wonderful and it's magical to see him enjoying it. And I, yeah, I feel so thankful to work, work in books myself, but also that there are so many other people who do and can create books that speak to their like places and, you know, their backgrounds as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, really working in a community of magicians it's uh, <laughs> yes that's a great way to put it that's a great way to put it yeah well i'm gonna i'm gonna go and get a copy of pete the cat for aiden i think that'll be really really great <laughs> awesome <laughs> alicia thanks so much this has been such a delight of a conversation and i really really appreciate your getting up early on a san francisco morning to chat to me thank you so much <laughs> no problem thank you arthur and thank you for listening If you enjoyed this, it would be such a help if you'd take a moment to share that with a friend or on social media. You'd be amazed at the effect that every share has on our downloads. So, thanks for that too. You can point people to howbooksaremade.com, where I'll also post links to things we talked about today. We'll also add a transcript of this conversation there. How Books Are Made is supported by Electric Bookworks, where my team and I make books all day, every day, in sunny Cape Town, South Africa. 